Welcome to the Popcorn Talk Network. For the online broadcast network that features movie discussion, news, and interviews, press one. Popcorn Talk. We talk movies. From the Popcorn Talk Network, the online broadcast network for movie talk, Alicia Malone with Scott Movie Mance and the Schmoes Know, this is Profile. In-depth spotlights on the greatest filmmakers and artists in motion picture history. Hello, Profilers! Welcome to another first in our show. This is the first time we are spotlighting a directing duo mm-hmm. the cohen brothers yes every time we do a profile show what you are going to get is the most fun <laughs> the most informative uh-huh. the best movie show slash podcast in the world yeah. with the best looking hosts alicia malone and scott nance <laughs> this is all you need we're gonna have a great show today alicia malone i just walked in the door from berlin literally <laughs> literally <laughs> just walked in the door got from berlin plane, got in my car raced over here because i didn't want to miss out on talking about the coen brothers and it was actually really great on both my flights to and from berlin i watched a ton of the movies again for yep. the millionth time and it's great when you can watch uh, a director's work or a duo's work in succession because you start to see the style that they do all the time and um, and the great little quirky moments. I mean, the Coen brothers have to be the most inventive directors, some of the most inventive directors working today. Like 16 movies. There, there's no one like them. They're able to do everything. They're able to do comedy. They're mm-hmm. able to do drama. They're able to do crime. And even though they have all these different genres, the movies are tied together with a unique style that is all their own. You know a Coen Brothers movie when you see one. They repeat dialogue. They're quirky. The characters are exaggerated, but they're not over the top. There's a big difference. Yeah, they've got elements of Greek tragedy in them, film noir a lot of times, Homer's Odyssey, The Journey, uh, moral consequences for their loser characters, very sharp, funny writing, and beautiful cinematography. Mostly because of Roger Deakins. Not all the time. The one movie that I thought was him wasn't, but uh, it's just amazing that they, they use the same actors a lot. John Turturro, John Goodman, Francis McDormand, Steve Buscemi. Uh, but they, it's just whenever they have a new movie come out. It's an event. It's an event. It's like their next movie is called Hail Caesar. It opens next February. Yeah. I mean, I can't wait for it. I can't wait. It's just even their movies that people say aren't the best, they're still really good. Yeah. There's something about them. Even the movies that aren't aren't up there that are not anywhere near our Fast they're Five. They're still fantastic. They're still interesting to watch. And like you, I mean, I went back. Of course, I watched a lot of these movies, too. One of them that didn't make our Fast Five, but was a film I realized I had never seen before that I watched for the first time was Miller's Crossing. Oh, yeah. And that's a really good film. But other films, like one of them in our Fast Five, I hadn't seen since it came out many, many years ago. (laughs) And it, it, it was a film that absolutely had a completely different impact on me because mm-hmm. of the, you know, sort of the expertise we matter. have now, oh, you know, yeah. the subject matter. Well, yeah, matter. they've made uh, masterpieces, they've made cult classics, they alternate top billing, and they're often edit under the name Roderick James. Right, and it's interesting how uh, Joel directs, Ethan produces, they both write, mm-hmm. but they actually do both direct. It was like Guild regulations stipulated that they couldn't both be credited until they were an established directing duo right. and finally in 2003 I mean it sure took the academy long enough <laughs> yeah. but they were fi- or you know the directors guild long enough and they were finally allowed to be co-directors so the first film that actually has directed by Joel Cohen and Ethan Cohen was The Lady Killers from 2004 and I realized when rewatching a couple of these movies that they <laughs> must love Stanley Kubrick because oh, there's some yeah. similarities to Kubrick uh, the cinematography with the one point perspective and also there's their line a, a bit of the old in and out which, which Steve Buscemi says in Fargo, and I think he also says it in Big Lebowski. Well, there's a obviously when you're watching a film like Barton Fink in the hotel, the Hotel yeah. Earl, absolutely could be a it's very shining esque. <laughs> it could, could be the Overlook Hotel in some of those cases, uh-huh. but 16 feature films. So, what was your first? Oh wait, 
We're going to do It's a Wonderful Life. It's a Wonderful Life, yes. Because I cut together a little video. It's it's a difficult one this time because we're talking about two people, but have a look at the wonderful life of the Coen brothers. Joel David Cohen, born November 29, 1954, and Ethan Jesse Cohen, born September 21, 1957, were born and raised in St. Louis Park, Minnesota. After Joel saved up enough money from mowing lawns to buy a Super 8 camera, the brothers remade movies they saw on television. Joel studied film at New York University, while Ethan earned his undergraduate degree in philosophy from Princeton. In 1984, the Coens wrote and directed their first commercial feature, Blood Simple, which contained many of the signature elements that would define their career. Film noir, dark humor, unflinching violence, a botched crime, and layered plot twists. Together, the Coen brothers have been nominated for 12 Academy Awards, plus one individual nomination each. They have won four Oscars as a pair, including Best Picture and Best Director for 2007's No Country for Old Men. Yay! Yay! Wow. Alicia, I gotta tell you, you are an amazing editor. <laughs> you are an amazing editor. I'm a machine. I was doing that last night in Berlin. In Berlin. <laughs> and now here you are, watching it, listening to it on our live feed. Thanks always to Kenny, the pit boss, for lending his voice. Amazing. Voice. Okay, so now let's get into First Blood. What was your First Blood? I, I was gonna ask you that question. Oh, okay. Well, mine was <laughs> a Fargo. Okay. So and I remember, I, I was quite young, but I remember seeing it on VHS. Okay. So it was after it came out in cinemas. Um, and I just remember I, I kept hearing about the wood chipper scene <laughs> and, and I, and I hear about a lot of things. And I remember when Francis McDormand won the Oscar as well. And so I was like, I have to see this movie. I have to check it out. And I loved it. And then from then I was like, who are these Coen brothers? And I went back and watched some of their previous ones. And then ever since then, it's been like, when's their next movie coming out? Well, I moved out to LA in December of 1991. So three months before that, I went to the movies to see a film called Barton Fink. Oh, that's perfect. Just before you came to LA. Yeah, I was. Perfect timing. Well, it was perfect timing. But my reaction after watching that movie was, what am I getting myself into? (laughs) Because, you know, I remember my parents talking about Raising Arizona and Blood Simple, but I hadn't seen either of those films. And and Miller's Crossing was 1990. But but this was the first Coen Brothers movie I saw in the theater. And I was struck by just how ambiguous it is, how completely stylish and surreal it is. Mm -hmm. I'll never forget. And this is only because I had seen it once until about three days ago. Yeah. And I just, I had never forgotten the ending with the fire so and John Goodman's character is uh-huh. just so like who is this guy yep. and what does the hotel represent but it was such an unpredictable unforgettable chilling haunting stylish like it was uh, just just left such an impression for all those years but that was my first blood but actually brings us to yeah that brings us to our fast five number five which is yeah, it's just the three of us now. What's that expression? Me, myself, and I. <laughs> Barton Fink! Shocker! Shocker! Perfect timing. Released on August 21st, 1991. Three Oscar nominations. Costume design, art, and set design. Supporting actor for Michael Lerner. But even before it got nominated for those three Oscars, it swept the Cannes Film Festival, yeah. winning Best Actor for John Turturro, Best Director for Joel Cohen, and it won the top prize to Palme d'Or. And then after that, Cannes instated a rule that now no film can win more than two awards. That's the last time it's ever happened. No way. Yeah. But I think Barton Fink is one of the Coen Brothers' best movies. I think it's also one of their most underrated films. Great. They wrote it in three weeks while taking sort of a writing break from writing Miller's Crossing. Crossing. And so it's a very meta movie because it's a it's a film which makes fun of films. It's about a screenwriter suffering from writer's block while the Coen Brothers were suffering from writer's block. And as you said before, it's really ambiguous. It's open to interpretation. The Coens say they will not explain it it's up to everybody to to say what they think of it it's very surreal it's like a surreal horror film and no other movie i think quite captures the creative process that writers go through and the hell that writers go through literally literally, than this movie the sounds the design sound design the noises that you feel the heat the wallpaper peeling off if people haven't seen it it's so gross it's so gross he's trying to put the wallpaper back up yeah okay well now that we talked about how ambiguous it is what is your take on what do you think it means well i 
I don't. I think it does represent the hell going inside his head when he's trying to create a story when he's not feeling very creative. He's not. He's not inspired by the material. He has to write this film, and he doesn't want to, and he's just doing it for the money. So I, I think it's all kind of representative. I remember when I first saw it, and John Goodman's character walked in. I thought, is he a real person or is he just a figment of the mm-hmm. imagination? So I, I'm going with it's all a figment. Well, this movie uh, cost $9 million to make. It only made 6 at the box office, so it was not a hit by any means, even though it's definitely one of their best movies. Yeah. Like you said, very underrated. I think it's de- I think it's their most ambitious film. Mm-hmm. I think it's their most symbolic film. Mm. As for what those themes, I've guessed the, the writer's block, Hollywood, World War II. And then it like, starts out as a satire and then it turns into a mystery. But the themes sort of I got out of it the second time around. You know, because it takes place in the early 40s, I thought it was a metaphor for the rise of fascism, mm. the rise of Hitler and the Holocaust. Yeah, Because yeah. the way Barton Fink, played by John Turturro, sort of buys into Hollywood, thinking thinking he's doing like good, and thinking, oh, everything's going to be just fine. There's nothing to worry about. It was sort of a metaphor for how people did not see, did not immediately see the threat of Hitler until it was too late. In yeah. fact, Roger Ebert. The great Roger Ebert wrote in his review, he referred to it as the rise of Nazism. Fink is paint, Barton Fink is painted as an ineffectual left wing intellectual. He sells out while telling himself he's doing the right thing. He does not understand that fascism had a seductive appeal. Well, it, and one great thing about this movie is it doesn't matter if it all makes sense to you or not. And actually, some of the questions you might have about the film, you might not want ans- answered. It's that uneasy feeling that what's in the box? What is in the box? What is in the box? It it could be much worse than anything that is actually in the box. It's a very Hitchcockian thing. What movie did you think about when you were... Seven. Yes, Seven! Give it up! High five! First of the day! Well, a lot of people on um, the YouTube chat right now say they haven't seen Barton Fink, so do watch it. Do watch it and let us know what you think. Uh, Also, Ethan Ethan, Cohen said in 1991... What isn't crystal clear isn't intended to become crystal clear, and that's fine to just leave it at that. So sometimes there are sim- there's symbolism in a film, and it's just there for a reason. It's not really meant to mean anything. You but- can delve into it if you want, right? like people do with Kubrick movies. With Kubrick, with the Coens. Yeah. And, uh, and uh, Liam Logrand. Yeah. Uh, says the Coen Brothers film that doesn't get enough acclaim as it should, in my opinion, is Barton Fink. Yay. While considered a period piece, there can be no doubt that the issue of writer's block is timeless, and the film perfectly represents this through the metaphor of the hotel, the backdrop for this obscure and quite possibly serial story. This is the Coen Brothers' most ambitious film, and there's no definitive answers provided to explain a vast amount of plot points, such as what's inside the box. <laughs> However, I think that, that this decision benefits from the film significantly as it demands repeated viewings, yes. which it does, which isn't bad in this case if the film is endlessly rewatchable. This is a perfect metaphor for writer's block that ranks among the best films about Hollywood. Well, the, one of the scenes in the film with the, the fire, also the, the painting or the, the picture with, in the beach. Oh, the girl, yeah. So many of those could be in our right stuff. But well, it's not what I chose. What did you choose for your right stuff? <laughs> I have a feeling I know what it is, but you tell really? me. Really? Okay. Guess. What would you guess? Uh, I'm going to guess the same one that I picked. What did you, what did you pick? No Country for Moment. No, I didn't actually. I didn't go for that one. I went for Fargo. Okay. It, it's a very simple scene. It doesn't actually have any of the main characters in it, but it's when they're talking, the police officer goes to the guy's house who's calling in, seeing, um, seeing that he's a little guy, kind oh, of funny looking. Yeah, yeah. You know, he's just, what, how, how is he funny looking? Just a general kind of funny looking. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's just <laughs> idle chit chat. And the reason I love it is because of the dialogue. And I think it's, it represents what the Coen brothers do so well with Fargo, where they use that sing songy Midwestern accent. Yeah. And, yeah, yeah. yeah. And they have the back and forth. Oh, yeah. Well, thanks a bunch. You yeah, know? you betcha. Uh, and I just like how it's just a scene out of nowhere and, and it, it, it just is so fun to watch and so funny. And it just that little bit shows you why that movie won best screenplay. Definitely did. Just little details in that movie. Uh, I thought for sure that you the were going to pick. Guy, kind of funny looking. Kind of funny. Like, you betcha. You're darn tootin'. Darn tootin'. Darn tootin'. Uh, but you went No Country for Old Men. I, went, I almost did the... The... the uh, ta- call call it. it. Friendo. That scene... 
in No Country for Old Men when Anton Chigurh <laughs> goes to the convenience store, you know, the gas station, and he tells the poor, helpless guy behind the counter. He's just trying to be nice. He's just trying to be nice. He's call it. He goes, well, I'm not going to call it until I know what I'm calling it for. And then it becomes apparent to him as he's starting to sweat that his life is on the line. But here's the thing. He has a 50-50 chance of living. And that's a lot better odds than most people who run into Anton Sugar wound up getting. Exactly. You know, but that scene just... But you can't it, win with him. Like, no, everything can't. the guy was trying... He would just come back at him. Every Right. He kept coming back at him. Yeah. And he finally just said, call it. He kept saying he would not I give know. up. And whenever he walked into any scene, you just knew that whoever he talked to was was, was screwed, mm-hmm. except in another case. Well, well, we'll talk about that. But there was actually another scene that I wanted to use as a runner-up, yeah. as I wanted to mention, Inside Lewin Davis. Yeah. Which I, which I absolutely love that movie. The scene near the end of the film, when he goes to see his father... And his father is uh, demented or just completely out of it. And the father is not acknowledging him at all mm-hmm. until he starts singing. And he's singing and the father looks off out the window and he closes his eyes and he starts to cry. Yep. And then he's done with the song. He turns back to him and he goes right back to the way he was. And even Oscar Isaac as Lewin Davis is like, wow. Yeah. Like he made this connection. I almost chose from inside the window was uh, the please, Mr. Kennedy. Oh, 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 oh. I love that. And um, and Tyler Scott says that he would choose when Llewell- when Llewellyn sings "Fare Thee Well." Oh yeah, and that's Joshua great. Price says that he loves the surreal dreams of the Big Lebowski. The Big Lebowski. Well, we got a lot to talk about. I know. Let's get into our last detail. What are some of the... Me, hit me up with some Cohen Brothers trivia, Alicia okay. Malone. Well, did you know that the word dude is said 160 times during the Big Lebowski? I thought it was 147. Ah, I wrote, I wrote, I wrote down 160 <laughs> plus once it's written, so 161. Wow, 161. Well, did you know that in Raising Arizona, 15 babies... <laughs> yeah, because I wrote that down. That was oh, my next one. Oh, give it up. Another high five. Start the drinking game right now, the profile's yeah. drinking game. Every time we give each other a high five, you take a we shot. We must go to the same places for research. <laughs> what else you got? Well, yeah, that's that's what I was going to say. <laughs> 15 babies were used for this. 15 babies. Quintus. I love it. Joel uh, Cohen said that we kept firing babies when they wouldn't behave, and even they didn't know when they were being fired, so that's what was so pathetic about it. Or they fired one baby because he started to walk? Yeah. (laughs) Well, did you know that Joel Cohen was an assistant editor on Sam Raimi's first feature, The Evil Dead? Oh, I didn't. Interesting. And I still have to watch that movie. You're, yeah. Right. You don't like those scary um, movies, do you? So you write down the dude says, man, 147 times. Oh, right. Okay. Okay, there so go. there's trivia. So they say, man, 147 times, and dude, 160 times. Okay, very good trivia. Man, <laughs> you're looking at my notes more than I'm looking at my notes. <laughs> I can see it. Well, this is where we take a break to take care of some business. If you're watching... Sale. If you are watching profiles on YouTube, if you are listening to profiles on iTunes, what you need to do is to go to iTunes and rate profiles, review profiles, and subscribe to profiles more than anything else because we are doing this because we love to do it. It is a labor of love. Mm -hmm. In order for us to keep doing this, we need you to rate and review and subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. At the same time, make sure you go to our YouTube channel, which is youtube.com backslash Popcorn Talk Network, and subscribe to our YouTube channel. Mm -hmm. Very, very important. Make sure you share both our YouTube show and the iTunes podcast with all of your friends, and make sure you have them share it with their movie friends as well. Make sure you go to our Facebook page, Profiles with Malone and Mance. This is a really, really fun page. I love checking out all the activity on our Facebook page, especially right around when we announce who our next profile is going to be. And people get excited. People get so excited. Movies from them. Yeah, it's great. So yes, please go to our Facebook page, join in on the fun, meet fellow film geeks, hashtag film geek, hashtag profile for life. Go to our Facebook page, Profiles with Malona Mance. Like our page. You will not regret it. It is so much fun. You join in on the brackets. And then last but not least, make sure you follow us on Twitter at Alicia Malone, <laughs> at Movie Mance, at Alicia Malone, at Movie Mance. <laughs> okay. At Alicia Malone, <laughs> at Movie Mance, and of course, at Profiles SK, our main profiles. 
Twitter handle. And then some other quick things for you. Um, there is a Podcast One survey. We love hearing from you, so keep on sending your tweets and your comments because we do read every one of them. Don't miss the chance to take our very important listener survey at podcastone.com. Your responses will help us make this show the very best it can be. It'll only take about three minutes of your time. And you can tell us how you really feel about the show and help us get to know you better. So do it now. Take the survey at podcastone.com. That's podcastone.com. And keep those tweets and comments coming. I love reading the live YouTube comments. And then also something pretty cool from e-host Maria Menounos. Maria, our best friend. Who's also part of this whole thing at After Buzz oh, yes. and the reason why we're here yes, able to she do absolutely this show. Is. So now you can apply to her show Dance Battle America, which is ABC's newest competition special from our very own After Buzz founder and e-host Maria Menounos and Julianne Hoff from the Dancing with the Stars comes ABC special Dance Battle America. During the holiday seasons of the last two years, Julianne and Maria did some great dance battles via social media and now it's been picked up, turned into a show. So they're challenging everyone in America to battle out for the chance to fly to Los Angeles and compete on the dance show. It's an opportunity of a lifetime of lifetime. So if you want the chance to dance on network television, go to dancebattleamericacasting.com for more information on how to submit your video. You don't have to be a dancing pro like Julianne Hoff or Alicia Malone. Just have fun with it. <laughs> That's why the dance battle got started, why it took off. So submit your dance videos now. Once Get again, your ready. that website is www.dancebattleamericacasting.com. Go now. Good work. Back done. to the show. We are at number four in our Fast Five, which is... Cincinnati? Yeah. I, love this I bit. got it. What? I got it. You got Cincinnati? Yeah, you want it? Could I have it? Should I bring it in? <laughs> I just love that scene, so I had to include that. Inside Lewin Davis. I love this movie. It released December 6, 2013. Cost $11 million to make. Box office $33 million worldwide. Nominated for two Academy Awards. Sound mixing and cinematography for Bruno Del Bonnell. Not... Roger Deakins, mm-hmm. who was their usual DP, he was off He's making busy. a little film called Skyfall. Yeah. So he was a little busy. But what what was shocking to me was there was no Oscar nomination for Oscar Isaac. Yeah, he, he was fantastic. Was so good. He's so good because Lewin Davis is not a very likable character no. at all. Mm-mm. He is desperate to be famous. He is self-centered. He He's quite talented, but he's stubborn. His ego gets in the way. He uses people. He's angry because he feels bitter. unappreciative, but he has uh, unappreciated, but he has no one to blame but himself. And this won the Grand Prix Prize at the Cannes Film Festival in 2013. That's where I saw it. Oh, you saw it at Cannes. So I got to see it at Cannes and uh, just straight away I was like, wow, it feels like a very different Coen Brothers movie because, again, it has all the style elements that they're so known for, but it's a pretty simple story. Pretty straightforward narrative. Quite quite a short story. It's a week in this guy's life in New York in 1961, this Mm -hmm. folk singer. But it's so funny and also really sad and it says a lot about dreams and how far you should go in order to achieve them and what point do you yeah how much do you give up for your dreams and how what what point do you give up your dream well on that note all those things you said i completely agree with one other level that i took this movie was here's a guy who was immensely talented despite the fact that he was his own worst enemy despite the fact that he was sabotaging himself. Mm-hmm. I, I looked at it as a metaphor for, yeah, you can have all the talent in the world, but you also have to have timing. Yeah, right. I mean, the Place, very, right very last scene, he's on stage, he walks off. As he's walking off, he sees Bob Dylan and he hears Bob Dylan. He was this, this close. Now, I love Inside Lewin Davis. This is my personal favorite of all the Coen Brothers really? movies. Uh, mostly, I'm sure you'll kind of guess why. It's about the music, yep. the New York folk scene, early 1960s, right before the arrival of... The Beatles. The Beatles. <laughs> Had to throw it in there somewhere. But it is really a masterpiece. The soundtrack produced the by T-Bone Burnett. And it's all did... sung live and performed live. And Oscar Isaac used to be in bands, so he can sing. Justin Timberlake is in there as well. And Carrie Mulligan. Great, great cast. Uh, and and I, I agree, it's it's like right place, right time for that kind of success. But also, I think with the character of Troy, who's so nice and just easy to get along with, I think yeah. that counts for a lot. 
definitely. <laughs> As well. Oh, he's so nice. I know. Whereas Oscar's character, Lewin, with uh, with the agent, and you just heard Mel before that sound Mel. clip. Like, he's not very nice to him, but his agent seems a little hopeless, too. But uh, it, it's uh, Carrie Morgan is so funny. She's like, I know, asshole. She keeps yeah. calling him an asshole. She gets so angry. <laughs> She's but, so angry at uh, him. <laughs> and I love when I when I watch this movie, and, and if you've ever read the book or looked into the book, uh, Save, Save the Cat. Mm-hmm. which is about screenwriting and it's about if you have an unlikable character you have to make them do something in order to make them likable and the example they use in the book is saving a cat and he saved, and he the, cat. saved the cat and so from that first moment you go okay well he's not such a bad guy because he actually cares about this cat and he wants to make sure he gets the cat back to the owners I love that scene when he's on the subway and, and the song If I Had Wings is playing and the cat's just like looking out the window yeah I mean it's it, it's such a rich movie I think it's there's so much depth to it mm-hmm. Rolling Stone uh, Peter Travers in his review from 2013 he said one thing's for sure about this raw provocation from the Coens like the music the path runs deep and true you'll laugh till it hurts Rachel Cushing on the live YouTube chat says love the way the movie played with our expectation of time it was a great twist it was definitely oh yeah it definitely was a great twist yeah and our profilers Joshua Lozano says Inside Lewin Davis is a masterpiece with its beautiful music its amazing cinematography and its unparalleled acting the Coens created something magical although he is unlikable I dare say that Lewin is the most relatable character the Coens have ever made and I feel sorry for him every time he rides home from Grossman's after singing his heart out with the death of Queen Jane what more can I say from the first shot with Hank me oh hang me to the last shot of Lewin singing au revoir I love it it is a film for all those who want to create and to see what happens to those who travel down a different road interesting this movie is about the creative process and so is Barton Fink. Barton Fink. And Miles Prower, fan forever on YouTube, says, I never felt hatred for Lewin. I felt that sad that he was so good but never got his chance to get big. The harsh reality that this could happen to you, no matter how good you are, is a scary thought. Wow. I agree. You want to read one from Mike? Oh, yeah. Mike. <laughs> Sorry. Jet lagged. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mike Pisicano Mike says, Inside the Windows is the most personally introspective film that the Coen brothers have made thus far. It takes them out of their, un- their usual comfort zone, and with it, they deliver an emotional punch to the gut from the harshness of reality. Through the character of Lewin Davis, the, although the character of Lewin Davis can be rather unlikable at times, once he starts playing his music, all preconceived notions that you had about him completely disappear, and you begin to see this man for what he truly is. He is a passionate, soulful musician trying to make his way in the world, but life just keeps putting him down to the point where his music is all he has left. And Oscar Isaac's beautiful music gives Lewin a much-needed heart and soul. Again, what's a True. guy got to do to get nominated for an Oscar? I know, come on, He was Oscar. so good. So I mean, I would have bet the house if I had one that he would have been nominated. But, you know, there's only five slots. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? Well, what we're going to do now... Is Let's quiz go. show time to test your knowledge okay. of the Coens, Alicia Malone? Yes. This is an easy one because I care. I knew you'd be jet lagged. Yeah. And you you flew back from Berlin, literally got off the plane, drove here to Encino, walked in the door, boom! Here she is. Here's your question. Okay. What is the dude's favorite drink? Oh, white Russian. Or Bingo. Caucasian sometimes. Wow. Okay, well, here you go. Another one from Big Lebowski. How many scenes does the dude, Jeff Bridges, appear in in the Big Lebowski? Is it A, all but one, B, all of them, or C, all but three? I'm going to say all of them. All of them. Yes. You are right. The Even Nantabides. when the nihilists are eating pizza in the diner ordering pancakes and stuff in the diner you see in the background him and Walter drive past in a van oh, far so out the, yeah follows the film noir template which we'll talk about later on far out far man. out okay now we're gonna talk about the player the player we haven't done this in a while we haven't done this in a while favorite characters from the Coen brothers because the Coen brothers have created some really memorable and iconic characters no question about it i mean we could go on just about the characters in this movie <laughs> but of course the character that everyone loves the dude the dude 
Peach just wants to get high and go bowling. A most unlikely hero, Jeff Bridges. Who would have thought that this movie would be just such an iconic movie? And we'll get to more of that. Who else do you have on your list? Marge Gunderson. Yep. Francis McDormand from Darren Fargo. Darren Tootin. She's so lovely, delightful, yeah. hardworking, unlikely hero, pregnant. I, she loves Norm. Their relationship is oh, so, so great. sweet. Yeah. And of course, Francis won the Best Actress Oscar for this. But she's she's so sweet, but she's also really wise. Yeah. And very smart. Yep. And she I just, figures it out. She she figures it out. She never breaks a sweat doing it. And, she and eats then there's Arby's. Uh, right. Anton Chigurh. Oh yeah. Yes. Call it Frendo, one of the best movie villains ever. You did not you do not want to cross this guy's path no. if your life depends on it, and it will. Won the Oscar for supporting actor. He is the face of death. No remorse, no sympathy. This guy is a machine. He is unstoppable. Who else you got? What about Everett? George Clooney from Oh Brother, We're Out Thou. Oh, great character. Cares a lot about his hair. Yes. <laughs> and this was a time when Clooney just got out of the TV fame. And he is perfect for this role, that fast-talking, smooth charmer. It's, he's got the old-fashioned look about him. I mean, I always say that George Clooney is like Cary Grant of our time. Absolutely. And you can definitely see that in this role. Well, I love, speaking of Brad Pitt, uh, George Clooney, Brad Pitt, Chad Feldheimer <laughs> Burn from Burn Reading. After Reading. Yeah. He is hilarious. He is a moron. He is an idiot, fully deserving of his fate at the other end of a gun. But it's an underrated performance. Brad Pitt is hilarious in this movie. Well, this week on our Facebook page, the brackets were all about best characters. Oh, great. And big shout out to Joshua Willingham. who Yay, Josh! Said, said hi in the YouTube chat and then he has to go. But he ran the brackets this week. So the semifinals were between Walter from Big Lebowski and Marge from Fargo. Walter won that one. Mm-hmm. And then Everett versus the Dude. The Dude won. Of course. So it came down to Walter versus the Dude, both from Big Lebowski. Who do you think won? Well, just because I have to say it, you're entering a world of pain, <laughs> no. but the dude won. Yeah, the dude abides. The dude won. Yes. The dude abides. The so dude, the dude abides. Is a favorite character. And that brings us to number three in our Fast Five, appropriately, which is... I'm the dude. <laughs> so that's what you call me, you know? Uh, that or uh, his dudeness or... Uh, El Duderino. El Duderino. Love it. What a character. What a movie. The Big Lebowski. Oh, man. March 6, 1998. Cost $15 Notice the Coen Brothers movies. They keep their budgets really, really, really low. I mean, it's really amazing. Box office worldwide, $46 million. This is the Coen Brothers' funniest movie by far. It It didn't go very well at the box office, but it became a cult classic. How did that happen? Once it came out on DVD, I think the stoners started watching it, and then it got really famous. But it's really clever. I mean, this is a, a crime comedy. It's a film noir. It follows the template. It was inspired by crime author Raymond Chandler and his work. The big and, Sleep. Yeah, like The Big Sleep, those classic film noirs that you would imagine Humphrey Bogart in. It follows exactly that template. Joel Cohen said, we wanted to do a Chandler kind of story that how it moves episodically and deals with characters trying to unravel a mystery as well as having a hopelessly complex plot which doesn't actually mean anything. Because it's the same in if you see The Big Sleep, uh, the film noir, that's such a complex mystery going on. At the end, it's not really even a mystery. Same here. Same here. It's not even a mystery at the end, but it's so much fun watching them on the journey. And these characters are fantastic. The characters are, again, exaggerated. And maybe actually, maybe Walter is a little over the top in this movie. <laughs> this so is what nice. happens when you F a stranger in the ass. Or what they say on the TV version. This is what happens when you find a stranger in the Alps. In the Alps. What? So weird. Oh, that's TV for you. <laughs> but this is what happens when you have a stranger yeah. in the air. This is he always has to bring it back to Vietnam. And Shomer his character Chavis. is so annoying because he keeps screwing everything up. He is, so he's, the, he's absolutely the guy you do not want by your side. Interesting how this movie is about bowling, but you never actually see the dude bowl. No, you never see him bowl. <laughs> never see him and bowl. And poor Donnie. Donnie just gets told up. To, told, poor, yeah. Shut up, Donnie. Shut up, Donnie. Over the line! Yeah, oh, gosh. Yeah. Over the line! There's so many great moments. So many, so much quotable dialogue in here. The rug really tied the room together. Oh, the rug really tied I the mean, room together. I mean, it's the kind of movie that every time you watch it, you get something new out of it. Because there are layers to, to the story and layers to the, all the characters. And That's why it became a great actors like Philip Seymour Hoffman in there as well. And Steve Buscemi. Oh, it's, it's 
Peter Stormare's one Peter of the, Stormare. and Flea from Rolling um, uh, from, from Red, Red Hot, Hot Chili, Chili Peppers. Peppers as one of the nihilists. I was just awesome. I was just watching it on the plane on the way here. For in Variety, uh, Todd McCarthy said at the time uh, he was not one of the critics who liked it initially. Adds up to considerably less than the sum of its skinnelating parts. Where Roger Ebert said it's weirdly engaging, like its hero. <laughs> so and- just to give you an idea of just how how it was so mixed. I remember when I first saw it. Uh, it was their first movie after Fargo, which I thought was a masterpiece. Mm-hmm. And then I see The Big Lebowski. I'm like, yeah, it was okay. You know, it had its moments, I guess. But then it just caught on. And now they, you know, 19, in 2002, they had the first Lebowski Fest. Yeah. A big Lebowski convention in Kentucky. And they've had them all over the country. Yeah. And Jeff Bridges has showed up. Uh, Steve Buscemi. Uh, there's, a, there's a big Lebowski store in New York. And there's also a religion. Dudism. Dudism. What is Dudism? Dudism. It's, yeah, it's about taking it easy. And over 130,000 Dudist priests have been ordained via the website since Dudas that priest. started in 2005. So That's it is, so it's literally a cult movie. It is such a cult movie. And what about Jesus? Oh, John Turturro. John Turturro. And I know he's been wanting to make his own standalone Jesus film for a while. I don't know if, if it's ever going to happen, but he's keen to. But that character, just little glimpses of all the characters are so funny. It's so funny. It's so funny. Yeah, that Stranger was another film. as well. Watched it again. And I just like every time I'd seen it, I think it's just been like four times, but every time I watch it, I like it more and more every the time. The Surreal Dreams as well. Yeah, like, there's a dance number in the movie. Yeah. And, and Maud Lebowski. He just wants to just st- get stoned and drink his white Russians. And just wants his rug. Yeah, Don't pee on it's his like rug, he's, man. He's sitting, he's sitting. Oh, it was so funny when, you know, the guy's coming in the beginning and, and he, he picked the guy, the thug picks up the bowling ball. He goes, what's this? And he goes, obviously you're not a golfer. Yeah, obviously you're <laughs> not a golfer. At least I'm house trained. Well, Mark Todai, loves The Big Lebowski. Hi, Mark. Hi, Mark. He says, The Big Lebowski is my favorite Coen Brothers film. I saw it not long after it was first released, but I just didn't get the film nor the humor in it. In fact, I didn't like the movie for years until just last year when I bought it on DVD and revisited it. Not only was Jeff Bridges' performance as everyone's favorite stoner hilarious, but I also thought the late, great Philip Seymour Hoffman gave an equally funny and awkward performance in the small amount of screen time he was in. Yeah, he's he's like, laughs. The Big Lebowski is certainly worth a revisit if like me you're silly enough not to enjoy it or get it the first time around well billy Pollahan says the big lebowski to me is the embodiment of what a coen brothers film is the dark humor ridiculous situations and the characters oh man the characters make these men the most unique in all of hollywood the plot is simple misunderstanding that turns into one hell of a ride the film is so quotable i use them on a daily basis but the <laughs> screenplay the cinematography the memorable characters that's what really makes this a classic the dude abides hashtag film geek hashtag profiler for life Liam Legrand is saying I don't see any connection to Vietnam Walter and a lot of people saying that tie that rug really, really tied, tied the, the room, room together, together. such a great, great such a great movie I love the repeating of the dialogue <laughs> yeah. and they said that five times in the film they, that, that rug really tied the room together yeah I love it but there are so many other Coen Brothers movies that didn't quite make our list but are still worth mentioning in The Others I really like The Serious Man me too 2009 I really liked it because I love the cinematography I call it cine porn because you can pause it at any moment and it just looks spectacular the production design as well and uh, and, and the, the story it told and the ending too what was the meaning of that ending I don't even know I mean uh, he sees a tornado coming and that's it and then it stops yeah it it's all stops. about the the what is it it's about the Jewish diaspora and the but it's so simple and so striking in the start the beginning of it yeah as well well it feels like a fairy tale almost. It, it feels like their most personal film yeah. Because it is their most personal film. Uh, I love Burn After Reading. I think it's really funny. funny. And this was a film that followed up just a year later. It followed No Country for Old Men. Mm-hmm. How do you top No Country for Old Men? Well, you don't. And this was a film that, like uh, The Big Lebowski, is about nothing. Yeah. It's about nothing. In fact, the last the last line of bit of dialogue in the film with J.K. Simmons, uh, the plot is pointless. He goes, so what did we learn? I don't know. Yeah. 
At <laughs> love, that's just, just lying on the floor there. It's just lying on the floor there. I, I really liked Ben after reading. Yeah, it's funny. I, I remember, where, remember what, remember what you find when, you know, George Clooney's building something in the basement. You don't know what oh it is. Oh my God. And then you, and then you see what it is. You're like, it like, was hilarious. Insane. That but was I nuts. love that. Oh brother, we're out thou. Yep. Which was almost my number five pick. It's number six. It's number six. Yeah. It's, it's a Homer Odyssey mixed a bit with Salva's travels. It's a crime fairy tale road trip movie musical it's got everything it's all in one it's got some magical realism in there surreal moments George Clooney's character I love like I said before and the cinematography once again the grading of the film looks so beautiful and I love the song oh the music is great the Man of Constant Constant Sorrow Sorrow. the whole album is fantastic T-Bone Burnett won a Grammy for it what do you think of the Hudsucker Proxy yeah it's alright you know for kids. For kids, yeah. For kids. For kids. I, I, this is the, the Coen Brothers' most overtly commercial film, even though it wasn't a big hit. came out in 1994. Tim Robbins is hilarious in this movie. Go Eagles! Yeah, go Eagles! <laughs> I also didn't mind Intolerable Cruelty, ah, the comedy. Not on my list. With George Clooney and Catherine Zeta-Jones, because it felt like a throwback to the screwball comedies. Well, I like the fast, like zing, zing, zing. Screwball comedy. I don't know if it's a screwball comedy, but it's definitely a comedy. It's Raising Arizona from 1997. Nick 1987. Cage. Their first comedy. Blood Simple, their first movie. Very, very intense. Mm-hmm. Had a lot of signature moments that would follow them throughout the next 30 years. Miller's Crossing, which I just finally saw for the first time. I, I was, did you I like it? was, yeah, I did like it. Not on my list of uh, Fast Five, but I was like, okay, I'm glad I watched it. Good movie. And I also thought an interesting experiment was The Man Who Wasn't There. Black and white. Interesting experiment, yeah. Yeah, Billy Bob Thornton playing kind of a shell of a guy, very monotone, but it was all filmed in color and then converted to black and white. I thought it was, yeah, interesting experiment. What'd you think of Lady Cures? Nah, not so much. Nah, me neither. That's a lot. Well, let's bring it back. Let's bring it back positive here. Number two in our Fast Five is... I guess that was your accomplice in the wood chipper. (laughs) Oh. And for what? For a little bit of money. And here you are. And it's a beautiful day. Oh, Fargo. Fargo. Mod's telling it like it is. September, uh, March 8th, 1996. Cost $7 million to make. Box office was $60 million. Seven Oscar nominations. Two wins. One for Best Actress, Frances McDormand. The other for Best Original Screenplay. Lost Best Picture and Best Director to The English Patient. Oh. Yeah, right. Come on. I think a that film is overrated. Yeah, it is overrated. It is overrated. God damn it. Uh, damn it. Based on a true story, quote, exactly as it occurred, unquote, Minnesota 1987. <laughs> this is a film that is so full of irony. It is a crime story. It is violent. Dark. It is disturbing. But it is really damn funny. It's so funny. And now it spawned a TV series on FX with Martin Freeman and Billy Bob Thornton. And this is really a moral tale where all the bad guys in the story get what's coming to them. Absolutely it's all about do. crime and punishment. But as you said, it's so funny. There's some great iconic scenes like the wood chipper that we talked about before. The characters, Marge, was saying her and Norm together. I mean, she's such a nice, well-rounded lovable character William H. Macy I mean every single one of his stammers was in the script which shows you the level of detail that the Coens put into the script and he played that perfectly and darn tootin and then you have like uh, Steve Buscemi and Peter Stormare as the criminals yeah. who are funny but at the same time really scary and dangerous because you don't know what they're going to do next that image I'll never forget that image when when Margie, the foot, the foot is sticking out. out. <laughs> the foot is just sticking out of the wood, the wood chipper. It is just like what? I know. It's all about idiots just trying to make money, and then they get what's coming. And to then them. when when Steve Buscemi gets shot in the face, and he shoots, shoots uh, oh, William yeah. H Macy's father, like he, you know, he shoots the father, and the way the father dies, it was kind of funny. He's like, ooh, yeah, you know. But this appropriate that this takes place in a storm, a snowstorm, because. This is a botched crime where the complications ensue and it snowballs. I mean, it's a metaphor, but uh, this was uh, when William H. Macy, his character, he was such a (laughs) sad, 
pathetic loser. Guy. I mean, Such a sad, he's pathetic getting stomped loser. on by everyone. No, this is my deal. This is my deal. You yeah, know? this is uh, my. Oh, he's just and he's just like he lets himself get walked on. I mean, he's such a pushover. Yeah. Siskel and Ebert named this their best film of 1996. Roger Ebert said, "Films like Fargo are why I love movies." I That's really simple. enjoyed watching it again on the way to Berlin. It just it's so great every time you see it. It's Hi. wonderful. The dialogue is brilliant. Yeah, you're darn tootin' it is. Oh, yeah. Well, Josh Price says, Fargo manages to take a story about pathetic criminals, turn it into a fantastic film. Its juxtaposition of violence and humor both contrast and complement each other. Well said. As murder and kidnapping seem especially out of place next to domestic routines and serve as a satire of small town life. Its quirky and sly methods make the horror aspect seem ridiculous rather than revolting. And the Coens expertly use the cold and snow to create a punctual and picturesque environment from which to stage their crime story. But despite the weight of the cold, it's the characters that provide a warmth of humanity to make Fargo a masterpiece. And Rachel Cushing, who I think is watching live. Hi, Rachel. Joel and Ethan Cohen have put their own personal stamp on the genre, dark comedy, and in no film is it more apparent than in Fargo. This is a moody, bloody, and disquieting movie, yet it's also shockingly hilarious. The story has some amazingly dark twists and turns, but it is the characters that grab the viewer and don't let go. William H. Macy's desperate Jerry Lundegaard, Steve Buscemi, and Peter Stormare's crazy and terrifying criminals, Carl and <laughs> and the woman who stole the film, Marge Gunderson, the pregnant police chief played by the brilliant Frances McDormand, who, despite her thick Minnesota accent and her small town ways, proves to be one smart lady, not just about her murder case, but also about life in general. This is the Coens at their best, telling a thought-provoking tale that, though soaked in blood, is really about greed, taking responsibility for your actions, and always keeping a wood chipper handy. Wow. Go, Rachel. Go, Rachel. She's uh-huh. so good, isn't she? So good. Such a good writer. Such a great critic. Oh, yeah. So that brings us to number one. Number one in our Fast Five, which has to be... It has to be... What's the most you ever lost on a coin toss? No Country for Old Men. No Country for Men. Released November 9, 2007. Cost $25 million to make. Box office $172 million worldwide. Based on the novel by Cormac McCarthy. Eight Oscar nominations. Four wins, including Best Picture, Best Director, Adapted Screenplay, and Supporting Actor for Javier Bardem. Again, a masterpiece. This is the yes. Coen Brothers version of an action film. It's also the Coen Brothers version of a Western thriller. Absolutely. It's so dark and bleak. And then once again, like Fargo, it's all about crime and punishment and also fate being in maybe the wrong place at the wrong time messing with the wrong people it was the first film also to have been edited on Final Cut Pro the Coen Brothers always pushing it premiered at Cannes and full of violence but it's it's violence set in this beige landscape this beige bleak very bleak but beautiful but beautiful landscape and the characters are really memorable the actors are brilliant Josh Brolin he's a good guy but he's a bit greedy Uh, Tommy Lee Jones he's the sheriff he's kind of seen it all and then he sees more than he expected to and then of course Javier Bardem as Anton Chigurh well you mentioned how it's a little little similar to Fargo and it's, it's very similar to Fargo again you're dealing with a botched crime you're dealing with a case full of money in fact the case of money that they used in Fargo looks a lot like the case of money that Llewellyn Moss is using in No Country for Old Men so I was wondering if that was like like it's deliberate just to sort of like tie the movies together and then you have sort of an elder cop who's just like the, the the good soul of the film, you know, Margie. Now you have Tommy Lee Jones's character. Except unlike Fargo, I don't think all the bad guys get what they deserve. What did you think of the ending? Yeah, I thought the ending did, in relation to whether he killed her or not. You're going to say that? Well, I, I think he did kill her. Yeah, me too, because he doesn't like getting blood on him, and you see him walk out the door and just look at his shoes to see if he got blood on them. That's but he, why I think he killed her. He also promised. Luella Moss, Josh Brolin, that he was he, going to kill her. And he, he does have, for a serial killer, he does have he's, rules that he sticks to. Yeah, he's he sticks to his he's rules. He's very rigid he's in his rules. He's a man of his word. Yeah, man of his word. <laughs> a man of his word. <laughs> and he has an interesting haircut. Yeah, very interesting haircut. Uh, this is an amazing cat and mouse game. Javier Bardem, Bardem's Anton Chigurh, a very unique way of killing people with that Ugh, cattle gun. The whole thing is like a nightmare. It's so unnerving to watch. Disturbing. No score, except at the beginning and mm-hmm. at the end. 
end throughout the whole course of the film. And that's why you're on edge. Cause very you know, intense. Plus, it doesn't follow the usual Hollywood template, so you never know who's going to die or what's going to happen. It takes twists and turns. So remember the scene where Tommy Lee Jones goes to the crime scene at the motel? Yeah. And he goes in, and he's just sitting there, and you see Shigur... In the corner. In the corner with his huge shotgun with that huge silencer, and the light is shining on his face, and he's got this look of, like this terrifying look on his face. Yeah. So I, you, you, do you think that Tommy Lee Jones knew that he was there and that it scared him? Because that's what I sort of got out of that monologue he says at the end. Yeah, maybe. Like he, it, it like freaked him out a little bit. And here's someone who'd seen it all and he realized that you can't stop it. You cannot stop evil. Yeah. You know, and just... He's an old man. You're going to walk away. Yeah. I mean, the New York, the New York Times, uh, A.O. Scott said in his review, for moviegoers sent into raptures by the tight editing, uh, nimble camera work, and faultless sound design, this is pure heaven. And then bringing it back to Roger Ebert, no country for old men is as good as a film as the Coen brothers have ever made, and they made Fargo. <laughs> yeah. Axel on the live chat says Shigo has a Beatles haircut. <laughs> oh, uh, Would you agree with that? Uh, <laughs> maybe a little. A little. A little. Now, the Beatles hair was longer in the front and shorter in the back. Oh, okay. So, but it uh, did look kind of that style. I definitely appreciate the Beatles reference. No one appreciates it more than me in this room right now. And but Tyler Myers says Roger Deakins' cinematography is beyond gorgeous. It is. It it's is gorgeous. so beautiful in this movie. And Joshua Willingham, he says, No Country for Old Men embodies what it means to be a new era Western. A perfect cat and mouse story. Josh Brolin and Javier Bardem work perfectly together. Shigura is definitely one of the best villains portrayed on screen in the last decade. And the subtlety of Tommy Lee Jones' character balances out the overall feel of the film. Some people dislike the ending, which I thought was completely original and something no one saw coming. I felt like real life and it felt like real life and a real situation. That is why I love it so much. And Nikolai Quack ends it off by saying, I love No Country for Old Men. The movie's so perfectly chilling, not just because of the suspenseful cat and mouse game between Anton Chigurh and Llewellyn Moss, but also because of the symbolism behind Javier Bardem's haircut. I mean, character. (laughs) (laughs) He is not just a great villain. He is literally the physical embodiment of death and misery, following Moss relentlessly and killing anyone who comes in his path. Uh, He lets nothing stand in his way. In a way, he has to kill those people, not because he likes it, but because he gets paid or because it gets paid, but because it's just what he does. Yep. The ending of the movie with Tommy Lee Jones' monologue is great since it sums up the themes brilliantly about the evil that we cannot control or stop. Mm-hmm. It's because of all these brilliant themes, the great direction and the great acting that I love this movie so much. And Caitlin Bond agree. says, don't get him started on the Beatles. Uh, and David DeSoa says, what? Is this like the Beatles or something? <laughs> uh, uh, yes, it is true. And Caitlin Bond also says, please tell me the next episode is on James Horner. That was such sad news about oh, James. Oh, very sad news. So we'll Couldn't have to figure it. out something to do for him as a tribute. Absolutely. We'll figure something out. But before we end it off, one more bit of business again. If you are listening or watching, make sure you go to iTunes and subscribe to Profiles. Make sure you rate and review us. We really need these ratings and reviews to survive. We love doing the show, but the only way we can do that, the only way we can stick around is if you rate and review us, whether you're watching on YouTube, listening on iTunes, rate and review us on iTunes. Go to our YouTube channel, youtube.com backslash popcorn talk network, subscribe and watch and share the show with everyone and have them share it with everyone too. Make sure you like our Facebook page, Profiles with Malona Mance. We love when people chime in on all the films that they like mm-hmm. and, and they join in with the brackets. It's really very, very Fun. interactive. As you can tell, we read all the comments. And we read all our tweets as well. We love when people tweet us. We love when people tweet at us. Alicia Malone, at Movie Mance, at Alicia Malone, at Movie Mance. <laughs> Alicia Malone at Movie Man. Yes, she is catching on three times, and that gets another high five. So, yes, at Alicia Malone at Movie Man. And one last time for the rundown. Number five on our Fast Five is Barton Barton Fink. Fink. Number four, Inside Inside Lewin Davis. Davis. Number three, The the Big big Lebowski. Lebowski. Number two is Fargo. Fargo. You're darn tootin'. (laughs) And number one is No No Country Country for for Old Men. men. Friendo. Friendo. And that is a wrap. She closes her book. That's the show I'm we gonna will go see get you some sleep. she's gonna get some sleep i'm gonna get a bite to eat <laughs> and we will see you next time on profiles until next time bye
From producers Maria Menunos, Kevin Undergaro, Phil Svitek, and the entire Popcorn Talk Network, we would like to thank you for tuning in. For questions or comments, be sure to visit popcorntalk.com. I'm Sir Richard Wentworth, and this has been a presentation of the Popcorn Talk Network. The views expressed herein are those of the hosts only and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Popcorn Talk Network or its owners or principals.